Hello, and welcome to The Regrettable Century. This is A Time of Monsters, a series in which we will attempt an in-depth study of the history of fascism. I'm Chris. I'm Kevin. And I'm Jason. And today we are discussing the Marxist theories that arose in response to the advent of fascism. When Marxists discuss fascism, one of the things that we can do is look back at our sources to see what the early Marxists said about fascism. But that really won't clarify any sort of orthodox Marxist position because there are a number of them, and even the ones that agree with each other on the main points disagree with each other on other minor points. And some of the theories of fascism that the Marxists came up with in the early days of fascism are downright contradictory. But that doesn't stop mainstream historians uh, in, in our era from blowing off Marxist critiques of fascism and Marxist theories of fascism by saying, oh, well, the Marxists, they're too economistic. Uh, they, they completely got fascism wrong and they, and they didn't understand it at all, which to a certain extent might have been true. But what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the pluralistic nature of theories of fascism that existed in the early days. So preparing for this episode really helped bring to the forefront to me the way that we should think of fascism and the study of fascism, the experience of it as process, and that theories that arise out of it kind of, they seem to, they seem to show that really well. Whereas I think if there's like a school of thought that you're like, oh, fascism is this, or fascism is that, because somebody from my tradition thought so at one point, that really kind of has the effect of sort of flattening out the analysis of, of an organic and living phenomenon, um, and it's in it's an ahistorical approach, so like looking at the ways in which the uh, early Italian Marxists and the Comintern dealt with the contradictions inherent in fascism, um, it kind of helped sort of just repose a series of questions in a way that I think are a lot more useful. I I think that's true. I, I think that's true. I but I think that they're also I I think that can be taken too far in the other direction. I think that it can when. Uh, if any term is evacuated of substance to such a degree, it, it stops being a useful term. It stops describing anything. So there, there has to be like articulable um, definitions, uh, traits, characteristics that we can sort of point to and say, okay, this is what makes a thing fascist versus not fascist. Right. And I think that going too far in the the other direction is how we get to where we are now where pretty much everything is fascism anytime an authoritarian action has happened it is a fascist action going so far as to when people disagree to with describe me, that's fascism right going so far as to describe fascist fascistic acts as uh what does what define fascism so like if you're racist oh that's fascism if you're um, you know, if you're trying to silence another person's opinion, 
that's fascism, you know, anything like that. So it's 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 almost like a like a lifestyle choice in some people's opinions. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think that's fair. I definitely don't agree with. Um, it's been said to me even recently that we ought to consider that fascism is ever changing and that it will be different now than it was before, and so it's not super useful to have like a static definition. And I don't. That's not what I mean to propose. What I mean more is that. Uh, you know, as, I think as we get into it a little bit, we'll you know we kind of set up some of the dichotomies, like oh, fascism is a is a re- reaction to uh, economic distress uh, on the part of the you know wavering middle classes, or oh, it's actually a a a tool of finance capital. That sort of approach doesn't take into account the way in which um, fascism fascism in its insurgent movement phase versus fascism in its institutional governing phase actually take on fairly distinctly different characteristics. And we've talked about that a little bit when we when we talked about like the left wing of fascism in a much, much earlier episode. But it's like the recognition of contradiction within the fascist camp that allows for maybe more than one of these early Marxist assessments to have merit. And I think the reason why that's important is because you can see like political strategies flowing from one particular aspect, one variant of a contradictory phenomenon, getting an emphasis uh, to the detriment of the rest of them. Well, you know, let's get into yeah. it. Then. Our primary source that we drew from for this for this episode is Marxists in the Face of Fascism, which is a collection of writings by Marxists during the interwar period on fascism. And it is edited by David Beatham. And it's got a very enlightening introduction that I think is that everyone should read. Any any Marxist that wants to know anything about fascism should pick this book up. Uh, Haymarket Books is the one that put it out, and uh, it's excellent. And it's got a lot of stuff in it that you can't find elsewhere. We actually tried to Google the readings for it to see if we could find anything online to be able to share, and a lot of it has been translated for the first time, and it's only included in its English version in this book. So you can't find it anywhere else. So it's definitely worth picking up. But um, one of the things that it says is that Marxism has always been pluralist and possessed in equal parts the potential to be used for illumination and obfuscation. (laughs) And that is, is made infinitely clear when looking at Marxist responses to the advent of fascism. Oh, yeah, man. Like just reading over the the earliest like Gramsci and Togliati trying to make sense of what's happening in their country uh, in real time and then comparing it to like seven years later they they take on they take, they take a bunch of different positions that are that even just between the leading voices of Italian Marxism yeah mutually exclusive positions mm-hmm. yeah yeah and even even one person a few years later takes an opposite position so if you were, you know, that's that's kind of the point I was trying to make before. If you are trying to be the upholder of this person's thought, um, and really, if you're doing a good job of studying what anybody's written, you'll find this difficult to do. There isn't, um, there isn't just like a uniform, static position throughout the whole period. So one of the criticisms that we got of our last episode is, uh, uh, our last time of monsters episode is that. We didn't talk about the class nature of fascism. So what we're going to do now is talk about the multiple interpretations of what the class nature of fascism was. 
because there isn't a single monolithic school of thought as to what the class nature of fascism is. And um, I think that I think that there is a right answer, and I think we'll we'll draw that out in the discussion as to what the class nature of fascism is. But uh, the the early schools of thought on it differed. So we can look first at uh, Amadeo Bordiga, who is the famous left communist and member of the Italian Communist Party, who took a tack that would be echoed by the common turn later in response to the rise of Hitler. And that is that the Italian parliament was a fig leaf for capitalist dis- dictatorship and that a fascist coup would really make no difference. And the communists should direct their attacks on the socialists because all forms of class suppression are the same and there would be no difference between bourgeois class suppression and fascist class suppression. And he thought that the class nature of fascism was that it was just a bourgeois bludgeon used to, uh, to to subdue militant labor and that it was just the terrorist aspect or military wing of capital. I think, uh, so it sounds silly and ludicrous even in looking back from the 21st century to, to read somebody saying like, the government is, is a capitalist government and it's bad and fascism isn't fundamentally different. I guess I, you know, before having the experience of fascism, you might see how they, uh, how a person could arrive at such a position. Absolutely, I see it echoed even today. I was, have, I had a conversation um, very recently with somebody talking about what's going on in Chile right now, where popular uh, uh, protests have brought the government to the point of forcing it to rewrite the constitution that was written. Uh, by Pinochet that uh, uh, bound the hands of any future progressive representatives that would come into it uh, from being able to do anything even left of center. Um, The popular revolution has toppled that, forced the state to wipe the constitution off the face, that constitution off the face of the earth and rewrite one. Um, And, uh, you know, I I, I had a discussion with somebody who was saying that, uh, who cares, this doesn't matter, they're just going to reinstitute workers' oppression uh, through a a different form, through a liberal democracy rather than a a fascist one or, let's you know, uh, a right authoritarian one. And uh, it doesn't matter, uh, short of all power being transferred to the workers' councils. Now... You know, like on one level, uh, there is some. There's a sort of there's a kernel of truth in there. Like workers' oppression is going to continue one in one form or the other, and it's not sufficient to replace a a, the, a right authoritarian constitution with a liberal democratic one. Uh, I agree with that, but I don't think that it behooves um, the project of constructing a state based on workers' councils or a post or, you know, if you want to be a syndicalist, uh, a post state uh, federation of workers' councils or whatever. Uh, I don't think it behooves that project to pretend that there is no real material, practical, functional difference between the two. Well, it would be a different situation, like if there was you know, dual power in Chile and a situation of, it's, a, it's like a revolutionary situation and the Workers' Party could seize control of the government at any day, but instead we're just going to rewrite the Constitution to be a liberal, liberal democratic right. one. That's not what's fucking happening, right. you know? Exactly. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's it's one thing to say, well, this isn't good enough, and it's another thing to say, this is the exact same thing. 
You yeah. Know? Well, and and the and the practical consequence of this um, of the Bordigast line or 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 Bordigas position at that time, anyways, is that it left the communists without a strategy for combating the rise of fascism, because they only they only had a strategy for opposing the existing capitalist order as it was, and if you know they thought, well, it's not this is this is just reaction, and you know the capitalists are reactionary, and it it shows capital in in its death throes or whatever, because the world revolutionary tide is is uh, flowing forward, and it left them basically incapable of dealing with the fact that actually fascism is a is a distinct phenomenon like the the old the old right. methods of combat weren't sufficient and actually not just sufficient they were um they were a detriment and it also sort of ignores the inherent conflict that exists between the ruling class and the fascists right the um the fascists want to wanted to force the ruling class to cooperate with the working class so that the working class would get a greater share of the fruits of their labor, which the ruling class was completely unwilling to do until you had, you know, the threat of looming Marxist revolution. But the uh, the Bordigist wing or the, you know, that wing of the Communist Party in Italy at the time refused to recognize that at all they said this they they rightly recognized that fascism was merely a uh mitigated form of of capitalist relations you know they they recognized that but they failed to recognize how antagonistic it was to the italian ruling class and how initially it was a source of friction between them right well and the other thing it didn't it didn't really seem to acknowledge is that the existing capitalist order in 1920s Italy tolerated a parliamentary socialist party and trade unions. Um, and right. the fascists did not. <laughs> they, I, this, this is from the Gramsci, I think Gramsci and Togliatti, they, were, they, they describe fascist terrorism as being directed against the whole working class movement, whether it's reformist or not. Um, whether right. in revolt against or in support of the social order. So it's that it's not just organized counter-revolution, but it's actually terrorism from below and above for the purpose of ideologically and physically defeating the very notion of a working class movement of any kind. Oh, just that's, that's an incredibly like sophisticated, almost prophetic description of what fascism in power was to do. But they, you know, you could, they were able, some of them were able to see the kind of elements of this on the ground in, in motion, in practice. So that being the, the idea that fascist violence comes from below. I mean, initially it comes from only below. And then once the fascists are in power, it comes from below and is met from above. And it is either, it either rises from a call given from above or the, the violence that comes from above rises uh, meets the rising violence from below you know it's it's uh could, that's one of the things you that Bordiga misses could you explain that a bit bit more concretely i i i don't know i had a little trouble sort of following tacking you know following the the that the way you uh laid that out so fascism was a mass movement it wasn't it wasn't the just merely the direction of small bands of uh 
you know, small bodies of armed men by the state right. against the workers. Right. It was a mass movement that was harnessed by the fascist party and that helped to direct other forces that weren't even necessarily within the party to do violence against workers organizations. Gotcha. The, you know, the, the, the squadristi, the, the, the fascist version of the, of the, the stormtroopers, right? The black shirts would be out roaming around doing violence against workers. And then the state would call out the police to support the squadristi while they're doing violence. So the fascist, the, the violence from below was met with accompanying violence from above to help, you know, smash the workers gotcha. movement. And that's the thing that uh, Bordiga sort of ignores here is the mass nature of the fascist movement. Yeah. That, that it does have a mass base of support. Yeah. And Togliari refers to the discovery. I think he says like the, the discovery for the first time uh, of the possibility of a mass mobilization of the petty bourgeoisie. Like this is a new phenomenon in politics. So right. it's like it's forgivable in the first instance that you might not have uh, assumed that such a thing would happen. But it's unforgivable in the second instance to to not recognize that it's happening. So the, the fascist comes to power after the March on Rome. And we quickly find out that Bordiga was wrong. And that fascist oppression was a lot worse than bourgeois democratic oppression. And that was in 1921 when the fascists come to power. Okay, so at the Fourth Congress of the Comintern in 1922... Carl Radek gave a speech giving voice to the theories that were developed by uh, Clara Zetkin in Ulysses, arguing that Bordiga made a grave error in his initial characterization of fascism and pushed for the idea that fascism posed a specific and severe threat. And so this is, and later on, based on these sort of things, the Italian communist Antonio Gramsci and Palmiro Togliari. Anyway, they said that fascism was part of a general capitalist reaction, but not synonymous with capitalist reaction, and that the rate of exploitation needed to stave crisis could only be administered by a fascist dictatorship. And this is why the ruling class tolerated and championed it. So the, the thing that I think is important here is to point out that they said that fascism was part of a general capitalist reaction, because you've got reactionary dictatorships all over the world trying to stabilize capitalism during the post-war economic crises. But not all of them were considered fascism, and it would have been a mistake to consider them fascism. Right. I mean, he refers to, uh, I think it's Togliati, where he refers to the capitalist countries at the periphery that have like large middle classes and weak industry. Um, uh -huh. Countries like Italy, where those, those were the countries where the threat of fascism uh, was greatest. And he's, he said, basically, the capitalists of Britain and France just don't have a need for them. So like, fascist movements exist in every country, but they don't, uh, they don't find allies among the big bourgeoisie because the relative strength of the, capital, of the big capitalist class is such that it doesn't, it, they basically, I don't know if he's implying that this is conscious or not, but whether it's conscious or, or not is not the point, right? It's, the point is that the middle classes in less well-developed countries have a greater potential social weight uh, in terms of deciding between labor and capital. And I thought that was an interesting assertion. I had never really thought about that before. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that, yeah, I think that's right. Um, 
one of the things that they point out here is that Bordigo was wrong in assuming that the violence that was met, meted out by the fascist state would be similar to that of the bourgeois state. I think that the biggest the biggest difference between Bordigo's theory and the theory that was taken up by Gramsci, Togliatti, Yulasash, and um, Clara Zetkin is that the social core of fascism is the petty bourgeoisie. Right. Whereas, whereas previously Bordiga said it was just the the social core would have been the bourgeoisie riling up elements of its of the petty bourgeoisie to do its bidding. This theory recognizes the social core as the self-interested petty bourgeoisie. So it was comprised of demobilized soldiers, white-collar workers, shopkeepers, small manufacturers, and well-to-do peasants. And they believed that much of this core could have been won to socialism, or at very least neutralized by a more dynamic and intelligent movement. So... Fascism was identified by these Marxists as a unique mass movement of the middle class, which appealed to national unity as a bridge to abolish class conflict, but class conflict through class collaboration, which is different than what the bourgeoisie wanted to do. They wanted to abolish class conflict by uh, subjugation. Right. Well, so even in that in that assessment, even in that recognition, you can see why um, a lot of people on the left would have drawn a similar conclusion and, and this is jumping a little bit but uh, drawing a similar conclusion about social democracy as being another mm-hmm. variant of basically the same strategy of of that fascism has of trying to squash class conflict by uh, promoting class collaboration S- so that later right. when they come up with the social fascism line they talk about the mm-hmm. the uh fascization like the growing over into fascism by peaceful means um like you could see there's a kernel um in in this in this accurate representation about uh the middle classes and their sort of political expression in the form of fascism uh having having similar desires on the part of reformist socialists and the problem of course there is to equate the two is one of the dumber things that uh, stains our record as communists. Yep. Right. Antonio Gramsci said, fascism discovered the secret to mass mobilization for the petty bourgeoisie, an ideology of national unity and an organization modeled on an army in the field. There's nothing that the middle class loves more than playing army. (laughs) That's definitely true. I mean, if you look around at all of our would be fascists in the U S today, the, you know, the, the people who form like weekend militias and yeah. open carry AR-15s and target no, the yeah the the three percenters yeah, the number of those guys that are like uh like sanitation workers is fairly low those are like you know Fox News anger dad small business tyrants mm-hmm. right uh, skidoo dealership owners <laughs> right. and stuff like that well so the class nature of the fascist movement. The fascist yeah, core. The fascist core. Because the movement itself ends up taking in large numbers of lumpen proletarians, proletarians, uh, poor peasants, which, you know, I guess we could argue about the class nature of the peasantry if we wanted to. But it is more so than just shopkeepers and small manufacturers. Right. There aren't enough of those to there, make up 
an overwhelming mass right. movement. But, uh, uh, but, uh, hence, but its exactly, core is petty bourgeoisie. But exactly why they have to call use mechanisms of force to to ensure class collaboration because there's not enough of them to you to just uh, enact it through uh you know popular will right like 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 that's the the necessary right. that that's a a key feature of fascism that that uh, Jason as you were making the point earlier that uh distinguishes it from uh social democracy rather than uh reflects a, a similarity right right it's it's the only shared feature and the emphasis is in the opposite direction like between the two but the contradiction between all of the various uh, social forces that make up fascism is one of the things that Togliatti points to as the reason why you have to make a distinction between the fascist movement and the fascist regime, right? Because he talks about uh, right. the necessity of supplanting the fascists of the first hour, of the of the the original kind of core, the leaders of the street gangs, the people who make up all the cadres of the, of the fascist party, you know, in the process of fusing the party with the state is basically like, you know, and Hitler does it later with the night of the long knives. It's like to, to resolve that contradiction means to cut out the, whatever independent kind of spirit and momentum that, that original core had that made it distinct from and hostile to capital of finance capital in particular, at least according to Togliatti. So Togliatti points out that, the, the petty bourgeois that, that were drawn to fascism were motivated by a romanticized notion of small business that was promoted by the elite in Italian culture, right? Uh, which I think we've got something similar here. <laughs> Every, everyone here is just a down-on-their-luck millionaire. You know, a, a small, an entrepreneur that just hasn't found the good of their, their idea yet. But the same, the same notion, I think, happens, it occurs everywhere in bourgeois society but the comparatively large middle class of italy was motivated by a fear of proletarianization and loss of loss of individual wealth the small wealth that they did have and of course disillusionment with the broken promises of social democracy which at this point in history are quite significant because the the social democratic parties of europe had been major players in parliamentary democracy for uh, a few generations at this point and had failed to mitigate disaster after disaster. Right. So like the, the fear of being ground into dust by your big competitors in the, the, the big capitalists that have access to all of the liquidity that they need because of the bankers and whatever, whereas your small business, you can't get a loan that, will allow you to compete by opening new shops and whatever um, from above. And then from below, all your employees are talking union and going to socialist meetings and whatever. And so you have this fear of being all your hard work being uh, what everything going up in smoke, right? Because people who didn't take the risks like you took uh, are going to come after all of your, everything that you built for yourself. The for the fact that the social democrats have not built a more harmonious society that would allow everyone to thrive, um, they haven't staved off any, any of the economic recessions that they promised to stave right. off. Right, and so they might actually just expropriate your business, 
you know, rather than allow you to thrive uh, peacefully in order to deal with all the crises, they might just, because you've seen it happen and it's all in the papers, right? In Russia and whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. Like it makes a lot of sense that it, that in an environment where the threats seem to come from all sides, that this brand new force promising a new man, right? And a new, uh, it's going to discipline labor. It's going to, check capital and it's going to provide harmony and everyone's going to do well you can see why that would have an immense appeal for people the the fascists the nazis you know they were antagonistic to big capital and the labor movement they called the old the old aristocracy reactionaries they they considered them to be holdovers of a decadent rotten order that needed to be swept away you know we we talked about the 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 new man that the fascists wanted to create by creating a new society and they, they considered the, the bourgeoisie and the old aristocracy, all the big landowners, to be reactionaries that needed to be swept away. Even you look at the, the Nazi party anthem, they sing about fighting against the Red Front and the reactionaries, be, like meaning the capitalists. And they never really lose that anti-capitalist rhetoric, regardless of the collaboration that they... Uh, like Not even just collaboration, but... Straight up propping up and putting the needs of capital before the needs of the working class, you know, which we'll talk about later. But they never get rid of that anti-capitalist rhetoric. Right. This recognition of the contradictions in the inherent in the fascist movement and the fascist the fascist state, while I you know, while that's also really important for the sort of strategies that people like Gramsci and Togliatti are trying to develop. Um, I actually I was unaware of this person before, but um Zibordi is his name. Um uh-huh. What he does with that same uh, notion of the contradiction within fascism is he basically sort of just hopes that fascism will be destroyed by that contradiction um, and spends a lot of time um, arguing for, like, you know, parliament as a, as a bulwark against fascism. And it's basically like that the working class has its movement and it has its representatives, and that's a consistent, non-contradictory phenomenon and fascism is a big fucking mess and so it'll stall out basically it'll it'll trip over itself um and one of his conclusions there is that that the problem that what gives rise to fascism at all is the the attempt at revolution it's like the 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 maximalists or the bolshevik style wing of the socialist movement are trying to force the hand of history and that that's causing that has that's that's what gave birth to fascism in the first place is by failed revolutions laying the groundwork for, you know, all the things that we just said about uh, the distressed middle classes ground from every side by, you know, forces that seem hostile to them. And if, if, you, lo- if you look at the countries with very large fascist movements, there might be some validity to that exactly. statement. Exactly, yeah, I was going to say, I, I think there's a... A distressing to me as a revolution, a committed revolutionary, but a distressing sort of resonance with that line of argument that uh, I, I think could otherwise be attributed to failed revolutions, right? Giving rise to the context in which a fascist uh, movement can be successful uh, is being articulated by him by, as uh, attempting revolution at all is uh, eliminating our bulwark against fascism, the rise of fascism. Which is which? What he calls liberal democracy par- parliament. Gramsci and Togliatti would have agreed that 
fascism was a consequence of the failure of social democracy in Italy and and would back that up by talking about the the collapse of the factory occupations in northern Italy in the, in 1920 and the syndicalist policies of the PSI in the rural areas failing led to a lot of disenchantment in both the cities and the countryside by uh, disillusioning the urban proletariat and the urban petty bourgeoisie with social the social democrats and driving sharecroppers and well-to-do peasants uh, into the arms of the fascists because the syndicalist policies in the countryside were very unpopular with everyone except for landless peasants So, how did fascism win the support of the bourgeoisie? This, these are this is this is all part of the the same line of thinking that is agreed upon in broad strokes by all of the people that we mentioned, save Bordiga. The fascists gained the support of the the large landowners and the rich peasants by attacking rural workers that were trying to organize, and they were welcomed by the urban bourgeoisie who felt threatened by the workers' organizations because the workers' organizations in the big cities in the north were incredibly powerful, just like they were everywhere in the there was an organized working class in Europe at the time and public officials welcomed the fascists as well, but had always attempted intended to push them aside after the fascists were done smashing up the workers organizations. They sort of thought of them as pawns, right? Or tools. And that's where I think the, the perspective that fascism is a tool of the bourgeoisie, like it's merely like uh, something to be picked up and set down. Um, that's where it's based on a real phenomenon. The fascists intended to do the exact opposite. They wanted to smash and replace the bourgeois state with a fascist right. state. Well, and it they weren't super successful with that, turns out. No, not at all. There, there's a marked contrast between the social base and the interests that the fascist regime came to serve, which were just the interests of capital. Right, but... It abandoned its social base to stabilize the economy. Right. But you can see why, um, in the face of all that, there would be some people who would conclude that it is merely a tool of the capitalists. Right. It's just that it's not merely a tool. It's also a a thing that has its own internal vitality and its own, uh, you know, autonomous origins, if nothing else. And they were able to maintain enough control over the state and the economy to drive Italy into utter ruin. Um, so there's a, this is a pretty good quote by Giacomo Matteotti. Fascism is a movement the bourgeoisie thought should be a simple instrument of reaction in its hands, but once called up and unleashed is worse than the devil, no longer allowing itself to be controlled, but proceeding according to its own internal logic and ending by taking no account of the interests of conserving the existing order. Which, sort of true. Well, uh, would... I think a good way to conclude that, Chris, would be for you to elaborate slightly more on uh, what you mean by it's sort of true. Okay. So it's it's sort of true in the sense that the fascists always intended to smash the bourgeois state, create a new fascist state, and take Italy into an ex- a war of expansion. So they proceeded with those goals recklessly on some levels 
but then cautiously on others. Like the Italian, the, the, the fascist party's base would go around assassinating politicians and roughing up workers and beating up anybody that criticized the state. But the state itself, which was run by Mussolini, the fascist council, and a, and the bourgeois state that it grafted itself upon, uh, tried to mitigate these sorts of things to maintain stability and get economic production back into some sense of normalcy. So once the fascists gained power, it became pretty evident that a capitalist advance could only take place at the expense of the social base of the fascist party. So capital, is, capital needed to be concentrated. Consumer good prices needed to fluctuate with the market. And there would need to be new taxation on the middle class, which are all things that the Italian fascist party was trying to keep from, keep from happening, right? So the fascist party comes into direct confrontation with its mass base and the terrorist tactics of the squadristi destabilized the state and were issued by the regime. So they started throwing old fascist fighters into jail for disrupting the peace. But so Mussolini suppressed fascist party independence, trying to stabilize the regime. And this is like we, Jason mentioned earlier, the idea of the fascists of the first hour meaning the old fascist fighters that came out of the the syndicalist movement and out of the socialist movement, like the nationalists that broke with, with those movements who were militant and anti-capitalist in a sense, like anti-big capital anyway. Uh, they were replaced by bourgeois functionaries and their apparatchiks, you know? So a whole layer of bourgeois politicians and their hangers-on move into the fascist party and sort of grow the fascist party exponentially and drown out the radical voices. So in a sense, the goals of fascism were sort of like appended to be the goals of the Italian state, which now had on its face like the growth of fascism that, like, that helped guide it but not just completely, it wasn't just completely overrun and smashed and replaced by a fascist state. It never became the totalitarian state that Mussolini wanted it to be. Um, there was one thing I, I had neglected to mention like way before, because I found it in my other notebook. But Clara Zetkin in 1923, she said that fascism offered a refuge to the politically homeless. And I just thought that was really important. Like it, it's a... It's it's a thing I might want to try to return to uh, as a concept later on in the discussion, but it's just a, it's it's about the failure of communists. There's another thing that Zetkin said that I think is worth mentioning before we move on to the comment turn, is that she singled Germany out as one of these countries that laid on the that lay on the periphery, like Gramsci and Togliatti talked about. Spain, Portugal, the Balkans, Poland as being ripe for fascism because they had weak state and a large middle class. And Germany was one of the most industrially advanced countries in the world with one of the largest working classes in the world. And compared to Italy, had a relatively small middle class. But it was also completely destroyed by World War I. And it had a really, really weak state that was imposed uh, after the war. So there was, of course, a sizable petty bourgeoisie. But on top of that, there was an 
enormous lumpen proletariat and an enormous demobilized military and a completely destroyed yeah, economy. Millions of uh, angry, traumatized, recently militarized young men turn loose on the streets with uh, no direction or no hope and uh, a communist party incapable of drawing them in. I wrote this down. I wrote this down as definition one of fascism, and that would be the fasc- the the definition of fascism as given by Togliatti, Gramsci, Clara Zetkin, Karl Radek, and the people that I mentioned earlier, and that is that fascism is a mass movement of the petty bourgeoisie which directs violence at working class organizations, all working class organizations that has widespread support that was a consequence and not the cause of revolutionary defeat. It was used, but not always controlled by large property owners who turned to to fascism because the bourgeois institutions were unable to defeat workers' movements legally. And in power, fascism was unable to represent the middle-class base in the face of capitalist reconstruction. And that gave rise to a conflict which only which was only resolved by the reconstitution of the fascist party. And it was likely to flourish in a country with weak economic and political structure. So all communists could agree on one thing. The failure of the revolution helped cultivate the soil for the growth of fascism. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of detail in there that, you know, can be extrapolated from. But that basic agreement's important. So later on, we're going to get to... Trotsky's analysis of fascism, which I think grows out of this analysis of fascism and will be in direct contradiction to other analysis of fascism that we talk about. One of the things that I think was really important to to help underscore how the Italian Communist Party went wrong is they believed that they were in a situation where revolution could break out at, at any moment and that any attempt to make peace with the bourgeoisie was tantamount to betraying the revolution, right? So allying with the social Democrats against the fascists was basically betraying the revolution. And that is a mistake that will be repeated again in Germany. The Iron Front and the Red Front not uniting to smash Nazism uh, was a fucking bad idea. Well, you know what's really remarkable to me about uh, the people who say we can't ally with the Social Democrats because they're like, you know, they don't have a revolutionary vision and they're trying to apply a break. Whatever. Social, uh, the development of momentum in the revolution. Is that like, there were periods where the, in 1917 and 18 where the Bolsheviks were allied with Mensheviks and social socialist revolutionaries and their periods where they weren't. And it just seems like for, for how much all of these people like really even somewhat understandably like worshiped the Russian experience and all of the representatives of it, they really didn't seem to fucking get it at all. <laughs> They're like, no, nah, we can't ally with other you know, less clear headed socialist forces. Not like the way that the, only successful communists ever like the way that they did it's just it's just weird it's baffling but i guess i don't know it's we have the historical hindsight maybe 
1921, there weren't a lot of Italians that knew the day-to-day in and out of 1917 in Russia. Right. Yeah. No. I mean, th- that's true. I mean, you, uh, it's easier to uh, spot errors with the benefit of hindsight. Uh, but I don't know if it's really baffling so much as like a tragic uh, condemnation of the so- socialism in one country turn the turn to making the common turn uh, a, a function of the national uh, interests of you know the foreign policy interests of the state of Russia of uh, USSR rather than uh, the organ of the coordination of international uh, proletarian movement right that was seeking global global communism and when you when you have it uh, uh, you know functioning as the foreign policy uh, uh, the expression of the foreign policy interests of the USSR then it starts trying to make nice with uh, the countries that it has a presence in rather than than antagonizing them oh yeah like the whole social fascism to popular front period is really fascinating for that let's talk about the dumbest turn <laughs> in the history of marxist <laughs> social fascism social fascism if you ever hear anyone use the term social fascism or social fascist unironically this person is a dummy. <laughs> they are to be shunned. They are to be ignored and to never be taken seriously. <laughs> Plus, they're probably talking about us. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah they're, they're probably uh, associated with, or they, they regard uh, the Red Guard well, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, let's see. Like I said, a dummy, right? They could be a cop. Those people, you know? they're worse than dummies. They're... They could be even worse than dummies and cops. They could be red guards. Red guards, <laughs> right? Not like real red guards. I mean, like the fucking uh, the shining path larpers. <laughs> yeah. Okay, guys. Third period after nineteen. Probably the worst period. That period notorious for neutering the German KPD in the face of Hitler's rise to power. One has to ask themselves why the PCI's mistakes weren't looked on as a cautionary tale by the KPD. Why is that? Um, I wrote a note that um, the communist movement really just lost its capacity to correct uh, its mistakes in the, you know, as a, as a, res- as a result the face- of the, the internal sort of power, uh, the internal contest for power inside the Russian Communist Party or the Soviet Communist Party. Communism acquired an orthodoxy, a catechism, and a confession of faith that was impossible to stray from. And just like the Vatican, it had the common turn to dispense, you know, its holy writ. Yeah. And I mean, I yeah. feel like it's important, like, there's not enough time and it's 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 beyond the kind of scope of the episode to talk about why that is and how that happened and the whole process. Cause you know, it's, it's not useful to think of there was a vibrant revolution and then it became Moscow finally became the third Rome, but of a new faith. Like that is at least as complex a discussion as this. I think for now we just have to accept yeah. that by 1920, yeah, by the, by the late 1920s, uh, the, the, the character and, and conduct of world communism 
is such for a variety of reasons that we'll talk about at some other point that uh the flexibility to to figure out stuff around the world just it's it's not there right right um so then you have a situation where communists are forgetting fascism's mass character um because the move because fascism is institutional in Italy so that you can look at mm-hmm. it as just another reactionary government which is the uh the Ernst Talman line fascism equals reaction you know and that yeah fascism equals reaction and all capitalist regimes are defined as right. fascist but but varying degrees right that's important varying degrees of fascization because if fascism is capitalism in the period of uh if, if if fascism is bourgeois rule in the period of capitalist decay, uh, then all bourgeois rule is fascism since we're in the final stage right. of capitalism. I mean, talk about a you know painting yourself into a corner. And again, like you can kind of see why a notion like that could right. arise and even could be taken seriously in the period of the stock market crash. You know, in 1929 the the capitalist world does look like it's been knocked back on its heels and there are plenty of people who are not acting accordingly so all of those people are acting as defenders of capitalism whether conscious or otherwise so you can kind of see why you you know it doesn't take serious intellectual gymnastics to arrive at some of these positions at least at first um the problem is that lack of flexibility and you know and again i think it's a it's a it's a big problem that lack of dialectical thinking of the lack of the ability to to recognize processes and and to see the inherent contradiction in in things that are in motion kind of it kind of so, disarmed us it's crazy i didn't know that the the pilsudski coup in poland in 1926 was supported by the Polish Communist Party. Yeah, whoops. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so in 1930, the Communist Party under uh, Ernst Talman considered the Brüning government, which was a bourgeois government with a it was a right-leaning bourgeois government. They considered that to be a regime for the implementation of fascism. And then they considered the 1932 von Papen government to be a more complete version of a regime for the implementation of fascism. So if fascism was already happening in Germany, according to the Tallman, then how could Hitler really be that much worse? Since the KPD was currently surviving fascism, the fascism of Brunig and von Papen, then they'd successfully survived fascism. They didn't really have anything to worry about with Hitler. They they could, they saw the the fascistization as an opportunity. The new era of revolution was at hand. The possibility of revolutionary situation was open, and social democrats stood in the way of a successful revolution. Since all capitalist regimes in this final stage were fascist to varying degrees, the social democrats that helped prop up that system were social fascists. And were an obstacle to revolution and needed to be opposed first and foremost. Yeah. Whoops. <laughs> um. So what's amazing about that is that the right, like the the social democrats in Germany have a 
larger proletarian base than the communists. Now, they both are competing for working class votes, but the Social Democrats have more of, I mean, it, and it makes sense, right? Because the Social Democratic Party is the world's first ever mass workers party. It's the, you know, Engels was a part of it. Um, it had the long tradition of supporting workers' struggles uh, it, at the factory floor and, and at the level of state for a long, long time. And I think probably, I mean, it's been pointed out uh, by other people who studied it more, but that a lot of workers probably didn't really understand the communist social democratic split, you know, uh, especially right. reflecting back on it, like, you know, not in the immediate period of the, you know, right aftermath of the first world war, but like by the late 1920s, it doesn't, I, I imagine that there are plenty of people who's like grandfather and father and whatever, their family was always part of the social democratic party and they called themselves Marxists and whatever. And then you also have the communists and they're like, no, you're not real Marxist. Didn't make a lot of sense to people. So they had uh, a big working class base, but fascism is a movement of the petty bourgeois and is a tool of big business. And so um, what I didn't find in some of the, in, in any of the material in this section uh, was an accounting for how uniquely in Germany somehow the largest workers party is actually the primary vehicle for fascism. Like they just, they just don't account for it. Their evidence was that the, the Noske government in 1919 used the Freikorps to crush the Spartacist uprising. And the, in 1923 in Saxony, they used the military to dismiss a government of communists and social democrats and communists and social democrats hear that you heard that right because the social democratic the government that the social democrats were participating in used the military to disperse a government of socialists and communists in saxony in 1923 that proves that they were uh, social fascists also because there was a massacre of german communists in 1929 at the May Day Parade by the police in a government that the Social Democrats were, by the government that the Social Democrats were participating in. Yeah, I mean, sure. The administration so, of the capitalist state is, that's what it looks like, right? And that's the argument for right being a communist. But still, the the primary vehicle for fascism as being the world's, as the largest workers' party in the country... The largest workers' party in the world, Oh, right? I don't know. I'm not sure about that. Outside of Russia? I'm not sure. Maybe. But at any rate, your your biggest competitor and your mortal enemy, which has the trade unions and the majority of workers, it, it, it seems like it should require some new theorization. It can't just be, well, those workers are dupes somehow. This book also mentions that part of the wedge that was driven between the Social Democratic Party and the Communist Party was the fact that the Social Democratic Party held on to all of the working class institutions and all the organized workers. So the communists were very successful in recruiting unorganized workers and uh, unemployed workers, but not so good at recruiting the ones who were organized into the Social Democratic right. Federations and Trade well, right. So, like the Popular Front or whatever variation strategy, United Front strategies that existed later, make a lot of sense uh -huh. when you 
if you're considering that oh they have all the workers and that's who we want it's just it's yeah it's just it's just interesting that that's not the you know the first conclusion and on the other hand again i it was trotsky's idea you know and you know he was a fascist (laughs) oh i heard about that but also like yeah i I read i read about that on um freedom road socialist organization oh yeah i i remember i went through their trotskyism study series uh for fun Uh uh-huh it wasn't fun um no (laughs) no again it's important i guess to look at the recent experiences the ones that you just pointed out the freikorps massacres um as as reasons why it would be very diff- it would be a very tough pill to swallow that yeah you have to unite with these people against a threat that has not yet actualized itself in a in an in the form of the nazis so let's talk about this the the concrete theory here that the comintern and all of its associated bodies were operating under at this time was that we were in a revolutionary situation caused by the decay of capitalism and the superstructural form of capitalism at that time was fascism. So all capitalist regimes in these final stages were fascist to varying degrees. And fascism, like Bordiga said, was a tool used by the capitalists to smash the working class. So the class nature of this, of fascism in this theory is Fascism is a bourgeois ideology. And so anyone that participates in bourgeois government is, at very best, collaborating with fascists. So social democrats who believed in, you know, peaceful transition to socialism and were operating within these governments were social fascists. Right. Well, I like Karl Reddick's response to that whole notion, which is that you can cultivate purity in jail, you know. <laughs> It's like fascism has to be brought down by its base. And that means wavering sections of the proletariat, the hordes of unemployed, demobilized former soldiers, the small shopkeepers and peasants and the broad masses of toiling people. Um, And if the communists can't lead them alone, then you unite with the social Democrats on that basis. And, you know, it's Radek is speaking, you know, earlier when I was saying like people who didn't really, uh, understand the russian experience radic is speaking from the russian experience right it's like um right it's sad that in this period that uh you know that togliati is not really able to teach the like the lesson of italy seems to be kind of like forgotten by the late 20s so it's like less than a decade and already people are repeating this same mistakes well there's a reason for that and that's because of the power struggles that are going on in the Soviet Union at the time. Yeah. The the key opponent of Stalin's in the Soviet Union is Bukharin. Bukharin's trying to revitalize the Russian economy by implementing a market system and trying to add more party democracy back in as a check against Stalin's power, right? So what is Bukharin? according to pretty much any, you know, Stalinoid that you talk to these days, outside of being, you know, just a fascist, what they would call him a social fascist. They would call him a social democrat. It's like Bukharin was trying to bring social democracy back into the Soviet Union. You know, they're trying to, he, he wasn't a communist. He was a social democrat. And he was a well, social I was going to say by, by virtue of being a social democrat, he was a worse fascist than Hitler. 
<laughs> right, exactly. Who, by the way, the KPD allied with on numerous occasions. Whoops. So the KPD allied with Hitler and the Nazis in a couple of actions. In 1932, the KPD allied with the Nazis to bring down a social democratic government in Prussia and then refused to ally with the social democratic, the, the social democratic party against the Nazis later. And then in 1935, after the Nazis gained power, Dimitrov and Togliati's speeches about the unique nature of fascism were aimed at criticizing the KPD for these for these actions, for collaborating with the Nazis and ignoring the, the unique nature of fascism. And all of the blame from that point for, for everything that happened in Germany was placed squarely on the shoulders of the KPD who were following the orders that were given to them by the country. Right, I mean, like, even just, like, direct orders. Uh, right. We talked a little bit earlier about the wishy-washy nature of the communist line on national Bolshevism. You remember that? Where they would adopt national Bolshevik talking points, then reject them, and then adopt them, then reject them, then adopt them, and then kick a bunch of national Bolsheviks out of the party after adopting the rhetoric that they were using to recruit. Well, well right, in the, the KAPD, the smaller left communist group, or I don't know if left communist is the right term, but they even had like a Nats, a Nats Bull wing for a while. Like a like mm -hmm. a, a kind of an organized Nats Bull faction. Yeah, the, the Ernst Nikisch, who was the or originator of the term national Bolshevik was part of the communist party and was kicked out of the communist party. But that the only reason that he ever was a communist was because there was a large section of these nationalists within the communist party that were attracted to the communist party due to the communist party taking up rhetoric, like nationalist rhetoric to try to like, oppose the Nazis who were using national socialist rhetoric yeah, I mean, it's. it looks like the Communist Party in Germany was just a real mess. How <laughs> um, it like, was. Wait, so Manuelski, I think he's in Russia. But, you know, he, he says that fascism gets all of its ideas from social democracy and cloaks them in medieval garb. Um, and, like, the fact that the Germans were willing to accept something like that just on its face despite the experience of you know having been around for the social democrats in power really says that like critical thinking had been suspended at that point whenever you're able to yeah. be told stuff like that and you're just like well it doesn't really seem like it but you know that's what they said Okay, so Germany falls to fascism. Italy falls to fascism. Fascism starts becoming a looming threat in Hungary, Romania, Slovakia, Czechoslovakia, France. There's even fascist movements in Great Britain. Countries start falling like dominoes to the reaction. But, but before it goes to the common turn takes a new line, is this when the... The first step toward 
Uh, the first step away from the third period appears to be the United Front from below, which is basically, it looks like an attempt to not change any of the tactics of the communist movement, but to start to change its rhetoric right. a little bit. So like in the revolutionary mm-hmm. way out, uh, Ernst Talman refers to the necessity of maintaining the line of defeating the mass influence of the SPD as a necessary precondition for being able to beat Hitler. You know, that's the whole first Hitler, then our turn. Mm-hmm. It, it's that's right. a, that's a like a vulgarization of that line. But, you know, the proposition that he puts forward is that what we need is a united front from below, which is like no unity with social democratic leaders, but maximum unity with social democratic workers, which might sound kind of good on the on the face of it until you really think about what it really means, which is just all workers should support the communists. Uh I agree with like, that. Sure. Um, I think all workers should support the communists too. But since they don't, the that's I mean the fact that they don't in this moment is the whole reason to have uh tactical debates about the united front. Which which would seems like it would necessarily mean the leaders of the organizations of the workers who don't support the communists. So it's just it's just that the united front from below looks like probably the worst political formulation. It's I, I, worst in the sense that it was just totally fucking incoherent, not just like. Yeah, that seems to be a recurring um, a conclusion about theories that use the word from below. <laughs> <laughs> Is that they're incoherent? Yeah, meaningless and, and yeah. counterproductive. Yeah, I mean, it's the social fascism yeah. line, but with a language that no longer sounds insulting to the workers who you're calling social fascists. Now you're only... After how many fucking years of doing that, you think that's going to be just change the rhetoric a little bit? And the next thing you know, all of the workers are going to just, you know, it, it, if you take the proper line, that's all you need to do. You have yeah. to have a correct. And program. so it turns out that it didn't have any effect, yeah. um, which is, which is why yep. they change uh, yet again. But before they do, in 1933, Togliatti says, only a counter-revolutionary like Trotsky, motivated by anti-communist spite, could possibly have placed any hopes in the social democracy. And then the next year, they're like, despite, uh, we desire at all costs to achieve unity of action against fascism with all workers' organizations. <laughs> so that's whenever all the communists become anti-communists. So on fascism, I got to say, I don't I don't break too much from Trotsky on fascism. We'll, we'll discuss Trotsky's ideas of fascism later, but, you know, he's, he's a... He's one of the most correct. Yeah. In, in my opinion, anyway. I guess that's like... Yeah, I mean, I'm looking forward to getting to talk about what some of the disagreements that I have with Trotsky's positions. But um, the step toward right. them and away from the social fascism and United Front from below, those these are positive steps. But the, the Communist Party of France's national conference, uh, when they lay out that they're, they want the broadest possible unity with all workers... Uh, all toiling people and all of their organizations in the struggle for what they say is immediate demands and democratic freedoms, um, mm-hmm. which is, you know, what they used to call uh, the slow growing over into fascism, you know. But what's really cool about yeah. it, and I didn't know, is that they also say that we renounce all propaganda and attacks against genuine anti-fascists, which is there's like this, because it's 1934, so it's, before the period of high Stalinism, they actually acknowledge in a public statement 
that they have been attacking the other half of the workers' movement and that they're going to stop. So what's going on in 1934? Um, Social Democrats and communists are being shot in the back of the head next to each other in Dachau. So yeah. too little too late for the Germans. But it, not, not too late in France. So they're finally starting okay. to recognize... Well, and so one of the things that's happening is not just that they're recognizing what happened in Italy and Germany, is that also the USSR needs political allies in the in the European exactly uh, geopolitics, and France is one of the countries not fascist. The USSR has understands that the guy who wrote Mein Kampf, which says that the goal of the Nazi Party is to overrun Russia and starve its population and take its land to use for a greater German Reich is now in power of the most industrial advanced country in the world. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's a good, it's, it's good that they finally recognize that. So one of the things that I thought was something I'd never read before, which is anything by Leon Bloom. Cause I always, I always yeah, regarded Leon Bloom as being, Oh, he's a leader of the popular front. He's a, traitor to the real revolution you know whatever so you don't really learn anything about him but um uh his his essay on the socialist communist pact as he he refers to uh he says that within our party many workers never really supported or fully accepted the split that took place between socialists and communists um so he said like the the announcement of a of of a pact between the two parties is met with like like overwhelming joy because it's like finally the the workers movement is made whole again um and that's a really interesting thing to think about is uh the sentiments you know when we're talking about from below the sentiments from below being this is not a tactical agreement between leaders who are trying to outmaneuver each other it's it's seen by the masses of french workers as finally we have the unity that we have been lacking and that's just something i'd also had never really thought about before is the because I've never existed in a period whenever there are masses of socialist workers who aren't a part of squabbles over program at conferences, but are just looking to be a part of and represented by a workers' party. So this is just, just like a window into a really interesting phenomenon. So the Popular Front was sort of a... And the, the Leon Blum government in France was sort of just going back to some, you know, early common turn ideas about workers' government, right? This would be considered a workers' right. government. Yeah. We actually did a Patreon episode on that. If you're interested, you should go check out, join our Patreon for $2. The other really cool thing about the Leon Bloom essay um, is that even though he refers to the sudden about face by the PCF uh, as a kind of hot and cold shower, um. Mm-hmm. He also says that there's no contest between communism and fascism, and that if if the choices are between the Soviet Union and Hitler, the workers of France know exactly whose side they're on. And it just it shows that it's it, even despite years and years of being attacked as social fascists, that the leaders of social democracy are like, yeah, yeah, but now that you're done with that, like, you guys want to fight fascists? It just it paints it paints Bloom in a much and different light than I had ever understood him uh, before. The the way I had always understood Bloom was from this lens right here, 
from a revolutionary tiger to a trained donkey with the cargo of patriotism. That was the Workers' Party in France, as described. I mean, by it's Leon not entire. <laughs> that's a. It is a good burn. It's a good burn, Trotsky. Trotsky I mean, he's not entirely wrong, right? Like, um, the scene that probably should best define Bloom's career is later than than this. It's in the late thirties when he's addressing a crowd of workers uh, calling for to to arm Spain and open the border between Spain and and France, so that you know, mm-hmm. arm the Spanish Republic. Let us pour over the over the mountains and join our Spanish brothers and sisters in the war against fascism. And Bloom like is crying like, and he he says with tears in his eyes that the British and the Americans won't allow it. And so you know whatever else you can say about Bloom as being a person who has like solid ideals and really does his heart really does beat for the workers. The fact that he's constrained by the nature of the bourgeois state that he right and that's that's the the trained donkey that's why that that's why that insult lands so well because he really wants to do something else but he just can't allow himself to you know break the rules which is why ultimately i guess you know that's why i keep saying like however foolish and you know sectarian a lot of the denunciations of social democracy look on paper in in retrospect you see why the you know communists would greet these people with such a disgust yeah and even the so the leon bloom government was seen by the french bourgeoisie as being completely intolerable and i've often read elsewhere not in this book that the um the french bourgeoisie was would prefer hitler to the bloom government and that's evidenced by the you know wholehearted cooperation of the Vichy regime uh, during World War II with Hitler. It's pretty fucked up, man. <laughs> it is that. That's, that's true, um, Kevin. So let's talk about the, the, the popular front in Spain a little bit. All of my training as a Trotskyist in growing up in, the, in that tradition tells me that Spain was about to have a revolution it was in a revolutionary situation, but the cooperation between the Communist Party and the uh, bourgeois Republican government sort of kneecapped the revolution and allowed the fascists to take over. I mean, I I still basically think that, but well, to a certain extent, I think that that's true. I think more so than kneecapping the revolution. Which I think that's pro- there is probably some truth to the to the idea that they did that. They also tempered their support so as not to upset Great Britain and France and the United States by never giving the amount of aid that would have been necessary to defeat the fascists who were being supported wholeheartedly and generously by Italy and Germany, who sent air support and legions of fighters and just the germany germany's economy got a kickstart out of producing munitions for the spanish civil war and gave them to the fascists in spain or to the the you know the coalition which included the fascists in spain yeah i mean i think by that time we're we're talking about a period in which theory takes a back seat to realpolitik 
Um, but before right. that, you know, just in the lead up to that, like, I think that the popular front deserves a, a little bit more unpacking just as a concept. Because I think, you know, okay. to, to go from we're on the offensive and social Democrats are the the primary agents of installing fascism to uh, the United Front from below, which is the transition, right, from those are those are actually fascists to, oh, those are our comrade brothers and, you know, less well-developed socialists, which is a much more honest appraisal of it. Um, they... Uh, the, basically the redrafting of communist policy about fascism is it's pretty remarkable not just because it's an about face but because in terms of policy but it's a it's a complete reworking of the whole understanding of what fascism is yeah so like in the working class against fascism this is dimitrov in 1935 so he's like head of the common turn at this point all of a sudden they're mm -hmm. recognizing the anti-capitalist appeal of fascism um so which is to say to going back to the clara zetkin uh, Antonio Gramsci positions of what 12 13, 13 years before um, they equate they, they credit the success of fascism not just with social democracy sowing illusions about democracy but also it communist mistakes of underestimating fascism uh, like again and again and again right like the the Ernst Talman line is finally criticized and of course they don't take responsibility for giving them the line in the first place but <laughs> Uh, <laughs> right. They uh, being caught unaware, like unprepared for like fascist coups. So you know they're watching fascism develop as a movement, but then at the at the zero hour, they still just seem to think like it's not going to happen or it will happen later. So they're taken by surprise. And then the other thing that's really interesting is that he says the communists also failed to reckon with national sentiment, which is to say appeals to internationalism didn't win over the masses and so that's where they start to make this big turn to the patriotic element of the popular front so all of a sudden now the french communist party is not singing the international but they're singing the marseillaise and then it's most vulgar yeah you know there's the famous uh in the u.s the browder line is communism is 20th century americanism and they have Karl Marx and uh, George Washington, or not George Washington, Abraham Lincoln. Yeah, Abraham which is Lincoln, just like yeah. hey, at least yeah, they picked Abraham least. Lincoln. But like, talk about it like a uh, overcorrection. It's like a dramatic vulgarization, and they go from not just the they they don't move away from their old position so much as they take the exact opposite position up and down the board, which is an equally disorienting and disarming. And I think that this bears out in practice, right? It's a disorienting and disarming method because it's either fascism is this and social democracy is that, or it is not this. It is this other opposite thing because there's no accounting for the fluidity of uh, the ways in which these processes are unfolding and how in one instance, in, the, in, in one phase, social democracy might have been playing the role of providing accidental or even overt support for the fascists because they're afraid of revolution and then right after that are playing the opposite role and that both things can be true and that's why it's important to have you know i don't know whatever nimbleness flexibility like it shouldn't have taken them so many years to decide we'll work with social democrats 
but that's because they had to repudiate like a not just an ironclad top to bottom position but all of the people that represented it it took them years to like basically they had to wipe their entire experience away and then they go too far in the other direction so popular frontism recognizes the existential threat that is fascism like fascism will not only you know remove the cherished ideas of democracy but they will smash the workers movement and they will kill the communists they are the irreconcilable foe of communism uh, that's what the position that the popular front takes and they say okay we've even got a we've even got a ally with the progressive bourgeoisie against fascism because we have shared interests with them so they do that and they hold that line all through the 1930s right and that's based on the notion that fascism is the expression of the most reactionary and terroristic elements of finance capital which means that there can be Mm -hmm. other uh other elements of that social layer of the bourgeoisie which can be objectively anti-fascist which strikes me as fairly lazy theorization but it, I mean, it, it serves a purpose. Right. But this is where I actually disagree with a lot of my, uh, what I learned and, and was sort of uh, taught as, as a Trotskyist. I, know, I no longer hold the position that like, oh, popular frontism is bad because it allies workers' organizations to non-workers' organizations. Uh, I think that a theory which allows for the capitalists to be an objective ally in some instances is different than for the moment it's us and all the various bourgeois democrats against the fascists right like one one of them is a tactical alliance that can be made and the other one is the base laying the basis for a perpetual cooperation with the good capitalists which which means that you can't break from them ever. And I think that's the actual undoing of the popular front. The popular front line becomes the line of every communist party that associates with the common turn all over the world. And it holds that line until August 23rd, 1939, when the foreign minister of Nazi Germany, Joachim von Ribbentrop, signed an agreement with the Soviet foreign minister, Molotov, and concluded a non-aggression treaty between the USSR and Nazi Germany. And part of that treaty included the turning over of German communists who had fled Nazi Germany to the Soviet Union to the Nazis to be taken back to Nazi Germany and executed.